Well, this is the Sunday gathering of Baraka Bible Church. Um, the church is not the, the gathering. The church is not the building. It's not the weekly event. The church is the people. But this is when we gather in it. And our church name, Baraka Bible Church. We talked about the, the word Baraka a few weeks ago. If you weren't here, you can go back and listen to that message. But that little word Bible, it's not a filler word in our name. It's an, it's an intentionally placed word. The Bible, God's living and active word, is our foundation. It's what guides all things that we do. This is why on Sunday mornings we spend so much time explaining and, and reading and applying this book. Um, the Bible is essential to us. This is why we preach through books of the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And we call it expository preaching or Bible exposition. That, uh, if, if, if that's not your background, that's, that's totally fine. And, and, but some of you, you understand what that means. But that, that's not describing a style of preaching. Um, and, and so it's, it's not, um, it's, it's, that's not it. It's not, it's not a, it's not, a, it's not to be, don't think of that in terms of being just kind of a, a Bible lecture, um, cold academic exercise. No, Martin Lloyd-Jones calls, calls preaching, and, and particularly this kind of preaching, logic on fire. And, and that's, what, that's, what we, that's what you need to think of when you think of, of preaching. And so expository preaching, it, all that means is it's preaching that's governed by the exegesis, the careful exegesis of the Scripture. Now I'm throwing some big words, just hang with me. But that word exegesis, the little preposition, Greek preposition, ex, it's out of. And so what we're, when, you're, when you're talking about exegeting a text, you're drawing out from the Bible the truths that God has revealed to us. As opposed to eisegesis, ice is into, it's opposed to reading into the Bible our thoughts and our ideas and trying to find, make the Bible support what we want to say. So, so we're giving ourselves to Bible exposition based upon the exegesis of the Scripture. And so... Bible exposition, it looks differently, it sounds differently with different preachers and, and everybody has different style. But the key is this, is that the point of the passage that we're studying is the point of the sermon. And so that, that's, that's what we're talking about. The Bible isn't, isn't clay in the hands of the preacher to kind of mold, to fit whatever purposes and whatever things he wants to say. No, the preacher and the congregation, we're clay in the hands of God for him to mold us by his word. And so that's what we're talking about. Don't think style. Don't think of some, some guy you hear on the radio and that's Bible exposition. No, that's, the, that's what all it means. It means the, the word is what governs everything. And so because of that view of the Bible, because of our commitment to that kind of preaching, we come at times to passages that are very difficult to understand and, and tricky to interpret and complicated in application and, and we don't skip over those because we're committed, again, to work through verse by verse and paragraph by paragraph and chapter by chapter. And so we don't skip over those, quote, hard texts um, because we think with the aid of the Spirit's illuminating work and diligent study, we, we do the best we can in those passages. Well, let me just say our text this morning is not one of those difficult passages. <laughs> uh, we've been in some. Today it's so simple. We got this one, Okay. Just one thing, one little, one little command, one simple point, just love one another. So easy, right? And maybe you're thinking, I, I, you, I got love. I'm, I'm a loving person. I, 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 I got this. I, I'm, I, I'm really glad that so-and-so is here today 
because they really need to hear this message. But if, if, if we were to do a little rating and we, on a, a love one another scale, one being the lowest, ten being the highest, you, you say, I, I, I could be a solid five. Maybe, maybe a seven. Maybe there's some sevens and eights. Maybe there's even a nine out there. I don't know. Of course, well, nobody's perfect. There are no tens. And, but no, I'm okay. I'm not a mean person. I care for people. I'm loving. But then we keep reading. <laughs> Jesus says, love one another just as I have loved you. And then we say, uh-oh. <laughs> that's, that's, that changes things. Um, it suddenly becomes less simple and simplistic anyway. It's not complicated, but it's not simplistic. Um, maybe, maybe we don't got this. <laughs> maybe obeying this command isn't like summiting and climbing to the top of Stone Mountain. Maybe it's more of a Mount Everest kind of command. And I, very few people ever summit Mount Everest are able to do that. Has anybody here ever climbed to the top of Mount Everest? I don't think so. And I don't think any of you probably even know anybody who has. There might be a few, um, personally. Um, but even those that do make it to the top, they don't stay there. They don't know living on top of Mount Everest. You can't live there. You, you, we, we can't, you can't stay there. So that's, that's how it is with this. As we, as we see it in this context, love one another as I have loved you. It's, it's so high. It's such a lofty goal. And so this morning's passage, it's, it's, it's about love. And yes, we miss Valentine's Day by uh, one and a half weeks. But, but this is not mushy. It's not that. That's not the scene. This is, and this isn't a standalone proverb on love. We're like, oh, okay, we're just going to talk about love this week. That's interesting. And what will we talk about next week? This isn't some random thought of Jesus. Let me just talk about love for a minute. A little rabbit trail of Jesus. No, this is this comes in a well-defined section in the Gospel of John. We, if you've been with us the last few weeks, we started in chapter 13 just a few weeks ago. We call it the upper room discourse, and it's this, it's this, it's this chunk of teaching of Jesus where he's, he's with his disciples in the upper room uh, just before his betrayal, or in this case, right, yeah, right on the eve of his betrayal and his arrest, just hours away from his crucifixion. And he's got his disciples together in this upper room. He knows his hours has come, so he's up there. Eat, they eat a meal together, and he teaches them. And, and he's preparing them for his death. And his departure. These are, these are his last words in a sense. Before he physically dies. He's getting them ready for this major blow to their gut. And just preparing them. So the time is urgent. Jesus wastes no words with his disciples. Everything he says carries this weight to it. There is no fluff. There is no filler in Jesus' uh, Jesus's words with his disciples. Not like a preacher where we can just kind of throw some stuff in there and spread it out. That's not it. Everything he does, everything he says has purpose and it's designed to prepare them for his departure. So the foot washing is preparation. Even last week we saw that prediction of Judas's betrayal and he, and he, and you, and again we think, why does Jesus do that? Why doesn't he just to have that conversation in private with Judas, don't, go do what you're going to do, do it quickly. Nobody does it in this public way with the disciples, and yet this kind of veiled way, in this cryptic way, and he sends Judas out. But, but he tells us why he does it. Back in verse 19, I'm telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Again, everything is preparing them. 
He's, he's this loving concern of Jesus for the spiritual stability of his disciples. And so it's all by design. It all has weight. He's going away. They can go with him. And he's preparing them for that, that reality. And so this exhortation to love one another, again, we've got to see it in that context. It's not just some pithy statement to, to, make, them, to make life happier for them. That's not what this is. This isn't relational self-help. Just, I just want you guys to get along and I know life will be better. You can just, just be nice to one another. That is not it. This, their, obedience or, their obedience to this command is, is going to be life to them. This is critical for them for his, for his going away. After he's gone, their love for one another will be key to their spiritual stability. It will be, it will be essential for, for their success and the mission that Christ is going to give them to make disciples of all nations. It's essential. And after he's gone, we'll talk about this more in a moment, but people aren't going to know that they're Jesus' disciples because they just tag along with Jesus everywhere he goes because he's going to be gone. He's going away. How will people know? How will people know that they're marked as followers of Jesus Christ? And he's going to say in this passage, it's because you love one another. So this is, this is key preparation for them. So the main point of the passage, is, which is the main point of this sermon, is very easy to state. But it is impossible to live out consistently apart from the grace of God and the work of the, and the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so, but it's critical. It's especially for God's people in a time of transition like the disciples are going to be, in a time that is troubling and, and there's turmoil and there's difficulty and there's challenges. And brothers and sisters, I know what's going on in a lot of your lives and even in our church. And this is a, there's difficult time and there's transition and there's growth and there's change. And we need this, brothers and sisters. We need, we need to hear those words of Christ. We need these to, to soak in our hearts and to, and to flesh out in the way we, that we live and relate to one another. So the big idea is simply this. We're commanded to love one another as Jesus has loved us. That's it. So we're going to unearth, going to exposit uh, these five aspects of Christ's love that we're to emulate. First, First aspect is this, is it's a sacrificial love. Jesus' love is a sacrificial love. In the immediate context, again, we, you back up into in verse 30, and Judas, after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. And then so verse 31 picks right up, and when he had gone out. So Judas is dismissed from the dinner by Christ. It's go time now for Jesus' suffering. It's, it's, it's begun. And, and so, so the next words out of Jesus' mouth, I'm very interested in what he's going to say. What's the first thing he's going to say to his disciples after Judas is gone? He's out of the midst. The, the betrayer, the traitor is gone. It's the 11 that are left, 11 who are clean, who've had the bath of conversion. And, and what is he going to say to them? And these are the first words out of his mouth. When he had gone out, Jesus said... Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself and glorify Him at once. And you read that and you think, wait, I thought this was about love. I thought that's what we're talking about this morning. But it says nothing about love. Verses 31 and 32 don't mention love. They 
They talk about glory and glorify five times in two verses. Glorify. So then, then you get past verse 32 and, it, and Jesus says nothing else about glory. And he talks about love. So, so what's going on? How, do these fit, how does this fit together? Does it fit together? Yes, it does. And the key is in the previous chapter. I know it's been quite a while since we were in John chapter 12. It's before the missions conference. So this has been back in September, October. But turn back to John chapter 12 and verse 23. Just across the page, maybe for some of you. And in that context, if you remember, there are some Greeks. Jesus hears that there are these Greeks that are seeking him. They're looking for Jesus. And Jesus, this is some kind of sign to Jesus that the end is near. Not that he was like, oh, wow, I didn't see that coming. But he, he's aware. But this is it's just, it's, it's just another step in this path of suffering that Jesus is on, moving toward the cross. And so verse 23, Jesus says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. There's that word. Look down to verse 27. It just goes on. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And so the, the context of John 12, it and, and, and putting that together with where we're at in John 13, 31, and 32, it makes it crystal clear that Jesus has in mind, he's talking about glorify his death on the cross. It's by the cross that Jesus will be glorified. It's by the cross that his Father will be glorified. You know, we think glory, we think bright and shiny and, and pretty and, and uh, you know, shiny gold and beautiful and angelic music and all of that. We're not dark and ugly and bloody. I mean, from a human perspective, the cross is anything but glorious. It's, a, it's the epitome of shame and humiliation. It's a symbol of defeat. And, and, and so there's nothing, there's nothing, humanly speaking, glorious about being betrayed as Jesus will be and, and arrested and, and just thrashed and beaten to within an inch of His life and mocked and nailed upon a wooden beam Nailed to a wooden beam and, and hung there to die between two thieves. To die this excruciatingly slow, painful death as this public spectacle. We think, wow, that's glorious. That's not, that's not the word we would think. But you go back to how the Gospel of John began. And, 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 Christ, and, and John begins talking about Christ's glory. John 1, 14, you're not turn there, but the Word became flesh, incarnation, dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glories of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. And if we didn't know the rest of the story, we think, how is Christ's glory going to be seen? Well, it's going to be seen in His miracles and His healings and all those signs. It's going to be seen in His powerful teaching and in His, in his sinless life and in His love for people. And, and yes, Christ's glory is displayed in all of those things. But the chief display of Christ's glory is the fulfillment of God's eternal purpose culminating in, 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 in His plan to exalt His Son before the world through His death and resurrection. That's, that's what it centers on. And this is how. Because to glorify God or to, to magnify God, to ascribe worth to God and weight to God, it's to, it's to put on display all of 
God's divine attributes. And, and so the cross is that thing which projects in, in high definition the glory of God and the attributes of God. God's love and His justice and His mercy and His righteousness and His, and His wrath and His faithfulness and His grace and His patience and His, and His holiness. They're all magnified at the cross. Like no place, like no time in history. There's a hymn that we sing on occasion. It's, it's an old hymn, Here is Love. And there's a line, I'm just going to read the whole verse. But the, the verse says, It's on the mount of crucifixion at the cross, fountains open deep and wide, through the floodgates of God's mercy flowed a vast and gracious tide. Grace and love like mighty rivers poured incessant from above. And listen to this line. And heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. You see, the, the, the justice of God and the love of God meet and they kiss at the cross. So we see the glory of God and the glory of a son on display like no place at the cross of Christ. And so the cross, God's justice is upheld and as, as, as His sinless Son bears uh, His wrath for, for the, the, the justice demands for sinners. So justice. And, and, and also at the cross, God's love, His mercy, His grace, they're, as the hymn says, poured incessant like, like mighty rivers as, as the way of eternal life is opened up through the cross. So you see these Again, this is why the cross is, is, a, is a place of glory. It's the world, it's, it seems like foolishness. The foolishness of the cross, though, is the masterpiece of God for which He displays His glory. Glory of the Son, glory of the Father. The, the, the infinite closeness of the sender and the sent. The God, the Father, God, the Son. They, they can't be separated. They're inseparable and and, and so the Father, the Son are glorified, Jesus says. And uh, one commentator said it this way. I, I just think this is a, a, a great thought. And so just listen to this. Whenever, whenever we think of Christ's suffering, we never know what to admire most. Whether it be the voluntary self-surrender of the Son to such a death for such people. Or the willingness of the Father to give up such a Son to such a death for such people. And I, I mean, I confess, when you're praying and we sing and we see songs, they, they emphasize the love of Christ for Him to willingly come and surrender His life. Other songs emphasize the love of the Father to give up His Son to die for sinners like us. And we're, we, we say it's both. The Father, the Son, they're glorified, they're loved, their justice is magnified in that moment. Verse 32 I think Jesus is referring to his, his resurrection, his ascension. The resurrection is that Father's stamp of approval on Jesus' death. The ascension is of Jesus into heaven, exalted him to God's right hand. And as Ephesians 1.21, where he's exalted far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And so the cross is a moment of glory. Now what does that have to do with love? Well, again, the glory is about the cross. The love to love as Jesus loved, it's it's going to mean sacrifice. It's a sacrificial love. 
Jesus has in view the cross as he as he's talking, as he's going to say, love as I have loved you. What he has in mind is the cross. That's what's looming large in the mind of Christ. The glory of Jesus came at great cost. Yes, it was a display of glory. Yes, it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. Hebrews says, yes, it was Jesus went to the cross to bring many sons to glory. But it, it, the glory of the cross was an act of supreme sacrifice. And you see the costliness of that mentioned throughout Scripture. Just a few quick examples, and you won't be able to turn here, but we know John 3.16 that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. There's giving, Galatians 2.20. The Son of God loved me and gave Himself up for me. Ephesians 5.2, Christ also loved you and gave Himself up for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God. Ephesians 5.25, and husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself up for her. 1 John 3.16, we know love by this, that He laid down His life for us. So to love like Jesus' love means we're going to be prepared to die like Jesus died. Sacrificial love. Now, just to illustrate a point, and then I'll make the point, but I'm going to give the illustration first. During the Civil War, the war between the states, Abraham Lincoln supposedly said that he could find all kinds of men who were willing to give their last drop of blood for the war. But he said the real problem is finding someone who's willing to give their first drop of blood for the war. And And, and what he's meaning is, I just say, taking it in the context of my home, it's, easy, I, it's not hard thought to me to think, man, I would, I would lay down my physical life for Brooke and my kids. If, that, if it came to that, it was my life or theirs, I'd be gladly give up my life for them, my last drop of blood. You know what I have trouble with? Laying down my agenda for the day for my wife and kids. It's the first drop. That's, that's where I really get tripped up. To love as Jesus loved means sacrifice. It's costly love. It means a lot of self-dying. It means laying down my rights and my privileges and my preferences for others. I would more gladly take a bullet in the chest for you and more readily do that than I would to take a towel to your feet and wash them in humble service. That's harder. I think you would say the same for me. I mean, just think of all the examples in a, in a church life and in our context. What, what does it look like to have sacrificial love like Jesus loved in a church context? Uh, just think of what it, as, we, as we want to be a church that welcomes. This is part of our, of our vision for our church to be a more welcoming church to this community as people come into our doors. And how do we welcome and, and assimilate people into the life of, of this family and not become closed off and cliquish? Well, it's going to mean... It's going to mean laying aside. It's going to be dying to self and laying aside rights. It's going to even just very practical things. I, I, I don't have my seat in this, in this auditorium. I do because nobody will sit on the front row. Uh, but you can join me. You can take it. I don't care. I'll sit in the back. I, I can walk up here. It's not, it'll be weird, but I can do it. Uh, so I'll sit wherever. I can stand. So, but, but I'm laying aside a, a right. And, and you, we we got to we got to think like that as we talk about even multicultural diversity. It's it's hey, I know I prefer 
things to happen one way and music to sound like this and prefer this. You know what? Who cares? I'm going to prefer others in love. I'm going to want what you want. I'm not just going to be like, I can put up with that. No, I'm going, to, I'm going to, by God's grace, enjoy, find enjoyment in your enjoyment of something that's different. It's going to take that kind of love. The other is, is natural. Everybody kind of, yeah, I love it when people do what I want to do. That's, that's not hard. That's not Christ-like. But it's, it's moving across, moving towards one another, laying aside rights, laying aside preferences, and saying, hey, I, I choose yours. That's, that's Christ-like love. We're, talk, we're going through this child safeguarding certification process. And again, April 1st, that's the day that we all need to be on this campus for that training. But it's going gonna, it's gonna to require us to flex. And we're going to have to change the way we do things and the way procedures and child care check-in and how things work and Sunday school classes. And these are good things, but we're going to have to say, hey, that's fine. Because I, I love, I'm, I'm willing to adjust, I'm willing to sacrifice, I'm willing to die to self just for the greater good and the protection of kids. It's, it's just all kinds of things. It's a thousand little decisions to die to self, to, 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 to love as Christ loved, to love sacrificially for the sake of God's glory, for the stability of the flock, for the advance of the gospel. We love like Jesus loved, which means we love sacrificially. And so... And then how do we grow in that? How do we grow in sacrificial love? Do we just pound our chest and say, I'm going to make these loud resolutions. I'm just going to, I'm going to sacrifice. I'm going to count the cost and do whatever it takes. No. I think it's going to, it's going to have to, if our, if our hearts are really going to change, it's going to be the glory in Christ and in His cross. It's going to be meditate upon His love for us. That's where it's going to begin. We'll talk more about that at the end. Second, second aspect of of this love, if it's going to love like Jesus loved, it, it, the, the Christ-like love is a sympathetic love. Secondly, a sympathetic love. Verse 33. Jesus says, Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. And so he's showing this tender, sympathetic care for the eleven. Judas is gone. But he's, he's showing that here, and he shows it in a couple of ways. First, he addresses his, the disciples as little children. He's not being pejorative. He's not, oh, you're just acting like a bunch of babies. That's not what Jesus is saying here. He's not making fun of them. He's, he's implying spiritual immaturity, yes, but he's mostly communicating how very dear they are to him. He's just a father loving his kids. This... This really leaves a mark on John, apparently. And you again, put your put yourself in the in the in the shoes of John, the Apostle John, who's writing this book for a moment. Here's John. He's emotionally basically just coming apart at the seams here. Um, it's all these conflicting emotions. See, betrayal. And he is the only of the disciples to know who the betrayer is. He knows it's Judas because Jesus whispered it to his ear. And he's just trying to come to grips with Judas. No way. And flashing back in his mind are all these episodes and encounters and conversations with Judas. How could this be? And now Jesus is talking about glory. And Jesus is leaving. And death. His hour has come. All these things are flooding through his mind. And, and, and in a moment of this conflicting and intense emotion, Jesus reaches for this tender, affectionate word. And he says to them, little children. That's a tender, 
tenderness of Christ, his care for his disciples. This is the only time this little this word for children, little children, is used in the Gospels. Only place. And it's only used in one other New Testament book. And in that book it's used seven times. Do you know what book that is? It's first John. First John. This letter that the Apostle John, this, this leaves such a mark on John that when he writes his first letter as he's thinking about the flock that he's writing to, that his favorite name for them is little children. And, and 1 John is basically a commentary on the new commandment, which is love. And, and so he, he uses this address, and so it's showing his tender feelings of our Lord. He's speaking, Jesus is speaking to his disciples like a father toward his young kids, and he's, he's assuring them, them of his protection and his care. So he, this is the tenderness of Christ in the way he addresses them. Second, in the fact that Jesus explains to him that he'll be leaving soon. Yeah, Jesus talks to them about this. At the Feast of Tabernacles, you notice Jesus says, um, he says, as I said to the Jews, but at the Feast of, the, of Tabernacles, six months earlier, Jesus told the Jews that he would be with them a little while longer. And so those months have now t- have turned into weeks, and those weeks turned into days, and now the eight days have turned into hours. He's just hours away from his crucifixion. In just a few hours, the day-by-day day-to-day physical contact with Jesus and fellowship between the Master and His disciples is going to be over. Jesus will die. He will rise. He will have some time with the disciples and then He will ascend to the Father. And the hopes of the disciples, humanly speaking, will be dashed. Their Master, the one they've followed, the one they've pledged their lives to, will be physically gone. And they will miss His physical nearness. They can't follow him to heaven right now, at least. They will be able to follow later, and he'll explain that to Peter in verse 36. And we'll see this next week. He'll explain that to the rest as well. But, but Jesus, he's not, he's not by telling them, hey, I'm going and you can't follow me. He's not rubbing this in their faces like, nah, 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 you can't catch me. That's not it at all. This is a father, a loving, this is the, the picture of a caring father sitting down with his children, his small children, explaining to him, daddy's got to go away. For a while, and you can't come with me, but I will be back. That's what Jesus is doing. This is tender care for these disciples that their whole world is about to collapse. And so the point is Jesus' love for the disciples and for us is full of tender care. Love is more than a feeling, absolutely, but it's not less than a feeling. Jesus cared, he felt, he, there's compassion, there's sympathy for his, for his own. His love was tender, it was big-hearted love. Paul loved like this in a lot of ways. We see how he spoke to the Thessalonian believers and writing to them, 1 Thessalonians 2, 7 and 8, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. He's modeling for us, I think, what it means to love as Jesus loved, to love with sympathetic, caring love. We saw that, looked in this passage several weeks ago, 1 Peter 3, 8, where Peter says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, 
and a humble mind. That's Jesus-like love. What is loving tenderly? What is loving sympathetically like Jesus? What does it look like in our context, in, a, in the context of a church? It's more than, it's more than just vocabulary. It's more than just saying, I love you, brother, and putting your arm around them and smoozing one another. That's not, that's not it. It's the question is, are you, are you really moved, affected by others and their well-being? Is, your, is the spiritual growth of others or the lack of spiritual growth in others, is that a major concern of yours? The stability of their faith, does it bring you just to tears as you pray for them? Is the physical presence of other believers extremely important to you? Or are you okay with just kind of living isolated and living as a recluse and do things your way? If you love like Jesus, there's going to be people around. You're going to be with people. Do you unceasingly pray for others because you care so much for their souls? Do you, do you, just in a very practical way, do you remember people's names? Do you, do you ask people's names? Do you introduce, do you welcome guests? Do you, do you listen to people's stories? Or are you just waiting for an opportunity to... Insert a word and talk about yourself. Do you, do you really listen? Not just to, just to the ex- external, but are you really listening to their heart cry and their stories and what they're sharing? Do you weep with those who weep? Do you rejoice with those who rejoice? We should, or, 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 are you, or are you somewhat calloused? Is there rudeness at times in your interaction with people? So for the love like Jesus... It's going to mean we have a tender love. That doesn't reduce love to warm fuzzies and raw emotion. That's not it. Because we're going to see what Jesus says next. Our love for others, it's to be an obedient love. That's the third aspect of, of this love. It's Jesus' love. It's, it's a stipulated love. I'm trying to stay with the S's here, so just bear with me. A stipulated love or a commanded love, if you want to just throw the S's out the window. Um, a commanded love. Verse 34. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. What does it mean when Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you? Is this really new? Isn't this pretty old by now? I mean, we, we go all the way back to Leviticus 19, verse 18, and, and where we find you're to love your neighbor as yourself. It doesn't sound very new. The entire Old Testament law is summed up in love God and love your neighbor. Is this new? What, what is it, what's so new about this? Well, the newness of the command is the newness of the standard which is attached to the command. It's love one another as I have loved you. That's what's so new. Jesus' sacrificial love and going to the cross for us is the new standard. But, but this is what we see. Jesus' love, it's, His love was an obedient love. In going to Calvary, Jesus was obeying the Father's will or the, the Father's command or the Father's charge as, as it said. John 10, verse 18. No one takes, Jesus saying this, no one takes it from me, takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge, this command, I have received from my Father. 
And so Jesus' love, in a sense, is a stipulated love. The Father gave the charge to the Son. The Son obeyed the Father, does the Father's will, goes to the cross, not begrudgingly, He's willingly, and God, Jesus and the Father are one. So, But here Jesus commands His followers to love one another just as He loved us. We love in obedience to His command. It's obedient love. It's commanded love. The fact that Jesus commands us to love one another means that it is possible to obey that command. This is not simply theoretical, but some theoretical but absolutely unattainable command. No, we cannot do it in our own strength, but we can love one another like Christ. He's given His Spirit to help us. Love is the fruit of the Holy Spirit who is, who is in us. And so it's produced in us as we walk in dependence upon that Spirit and His power. In Galatians 5.16.22 tells us this. That doesn't mean we're passive, though. Just as, just as Jesus obediently sacrificed Himself for, for our salvation, so we must obediently sacrifice ourselves for the good of others. This is obedient, commanded love. To not love one another is to be disobedient. We think like that. We don't just sit around and wait till we feel love uh, in our stomach for others before we actually love them. No. It's not something we get a free pass from doing once we stop having those warm fuzzies, those feelings. I just think of marriage. Marriage vow isn't as long as we both shall love. The marriage vow is as long as we both shall live. Maybe you say, I don't, I don't have feelings anymore, though, for him, for her. All the years of anger, bitterness, they've just drained, drained the tank. I don't have the feelings I once had. But, but, but that's, that's, that's not good. But it doesn't give me a pass as a valid excuse to, for neglecting the actions of love. That's what we see. I'm also not saying that love is to be purely dutiful, slavish, um, uh, obedience. That's not it. I hate your guts, but I'm going to do the kind deeds because I'm supposed to. No. A lack of loving concern isn't good, but God can change that. He can grow that. As I move toward the, the, the feelings will often follow the, the, the movement and the action of the life and the words and the, and the doing so what is, what is obedient? What does Jesus' love-like love look like in the church, this commanded kind of love? Well, it's choosing, it's choosing not to complain when things don't go our way. It, it, it basically, it's choosing everything. It's choosing to obey the Lord and, and all of the ways in which love is manifest and all the descriptions in, in Scripture. It's choosing. It's, it's choosing to give the benefit of the doubt to someone you disagree with. It's choosing to look out for the interest of the sinner in front of me, not my own interests. It's choosing to never gossip to, uh, about others. It's choosing to go low and to wash feet, to do the task nobody else wants to do. It's choosing to listen well, not to insist on being heard the loudest or the longest. It's choosing not to dwell on an offense, but to overlook it or to pursue reconciliation with a brother or sister. I mean, it just go on and on and on. But it's, it's, it's a commanded love. It's a choice we make to love one another 
as Jesus loved. We love in obedience to the Savior who gave himself for us, even when we don't always feel like it. Doesn't, love doesn't just happen. It's not it's how it is in the movies, but that's not, it's not how it happens in, in the church, in the home. It's commanded by Jesus, and Jesus is Lord. And he always needs to be obeyed. It's not ever optional. Fourth aspect of this love. We're going to love like Jesus. It's going to be a seeable love. A seeable love, a visible love. Again, stand with the S's. Verse 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So Jesus tells his disciples, little children, I'm not going to be with you much longer. I'm going away and where I go, you cannot, you cannot go with me now. Afterward you will. And, and so until this point, how do people know that Peter's a disciple of Jesus? How do people know James is a follower of Christ or John or Bartholomew? How do they know that, man, that, that guy's a disciple of Jesus? Well, it's because they followed Jesus everywhere he went. They were tagging along. Jesus went and they, they physically were with him and trailing along behind Jesus and eating meals with him. And, and when he moved from one town to the next, they went with him. And so he, they were just following him all over Judea and all around Galilee. And so, so that was the, the mark of discipleship in a sense, was just being physically present. They were publicly identified with Jesus by being physically present with him. But what about when Jesus leaves? He says, he's saying to them, I'm, I'm going. You can't come. What about when Jesus won't be physically present to follow anymore? When they can no longer find, use that as the mark of discipleship. Well, Jesus gives them, he gives us a new mark. A new commandment. Love one another. That's, that's the mark. This is the brand that will set them apart as Jesus' disciples. This is, this is what distinguishes you from everybody else. It's, it's your love for one another, your Christ-like love for one another. And what this means is biblical Christ-like love, it's, it can be seen, it is visible, it's conspicuous. You, get, you can see it. You, yes, it begins in the heart and, and oftentimes it's person to person, but it, it just shows itself in outward signs. As we're talking about all the ways that we choose to show love and obedient love, it, it's going to reflect, it's going to show outwardly. And this self-sacrificing, tender, obedient love that we've been talking about, it stands out in a world that's full of self-centeredness and callousness and rebelliousness. It's going gonna, it's gonna to stand out. We'll be marked as Christ followers. He's not saying that, that love is what makes us Jesus' disciples, and that's why we need to love. No, he's saying that love is what authenticates people who know and follow Jesus, who are close to him. And sadly, this is not what the church is often and always known by, um, by the world. It's often known more by fighting and dividing than loving. I'm speaking in broad strokes. Across the church, known for what we're against rather than who we're for. And the failure of the church to love one another in truth, yes, not just feeling, but to, to love one another as Jesus loved us has in, in many ways made the church indistinguishable from the world. And we, we lose our, we've lost our saltiness and the, the lamp is hidden. Um, most professing Christians love more like the world than, than like Jesus. An illustration of this, an example of this, I'm just thinking back from earlier in my Christian experience when the, the uh, 
Uh, church growth movement was in full swing back in the 90s. And, and, and uh, there, we, the, I would say that, that there were aspects of that. Was, it was just a systematic, um, systematic form of worldly love that the church just kind of accommodated. And, and what I mean is this, is that, that what was said and what the books and what they, everybody was saying, all those church growth gurus, they were saying you, you need to, people will only go to church with people like themselves. That, that's, that's it. And so you, you've got to target all your strategies. You've got you to select a people group. You've got to select the people. And, and generally they were always like suburban, white, upper middle class people and with family and kids, and you got to direct all your efforts on them. You can't, you can't, you aim at nothing, you hit it every time, that kind of a thing. And so they had all these clever cliches, but he said, you got to pick a segment, and this church will pick this segment, and this church will pick this segment, and, and you have, you got to have this homogenous church, because that's what works. That's all that, that's all that'll work. And I, and I, and at the time, I confess, it was, hey, it made sense, and I was a young believer, and and starting out in church ministry, and I was reading the books and seemed to make sense. But the more I said the scriptures, I said, that is not biblical love. That's not, that's not a love that's going to make the church say, wow, that, that is different. That, those people really follow Christ. They get together, they have the same interests, they look the same, they drive the same cars, they live in the same gated community, and they, they're all together, and they vote the same. And man, that is really impressive. How do they get along like that? That's not to stand out. When you look at the New Testament, you see what Scripture speaks about. That's what Christ-like love, a New Testament love. You have all those passages like Galatians 3.28. There's no Jew nor Greek or slave nor free or male or female. You're all one in Jesus Christ. Colossians 3.11, not Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And so the, the local church that's going to really reflect the uh, the, the Christ-like love and is going to set us apart as followers of Jesus Christ is going to be a church that reflects the diversity of its community as it reaches out and makes disciples where it lives. And so this is, this is not, as we're talking about pursuing multicultural diversity as a church, it's not just some like little neat little social project. No, this is, if we're going to love like Christ loved, this is what it's going to look like, brothers and sisters. This is the kind of seeable love Jesus wants his followers to have. Our logo is love. It's not love versus truth. Those are not opposed to one another. They're not, they're not uh, polar opposites, and we've got to find the middle ground between love and truth. That's a horrible way of thinking. That's not it at all. We are confessional. Doctrine is what marks us. But the most visible display to the world is our love for one another. How is, what is being communicated? Fifth and finally, we're going to love like Jesus. We're going to love with a steadfast love. A steadfast love because that's how Christ has loved us. Verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, and so it's like Peter's interrupting here. Jesus, he's going back to what Jesus said earlier. Jesus said that he was going away and they can't follow him. And then he says a few more things. And, and Peter goes, uh, back to the other thing you were just saying. I, I could just see Peter's... Peter kind of went and, uh, you know, just lost it there for a moment and just focused on, ignored what the next things Jesus said. He said, now back to, the, back to what you said earlier. Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. 
Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Now, I thought about holding off and preaching on these three verses next Sunday and just kind of te- taking them as a standalone unit. And, and that, that's why I was focused on Peter's failure and restoration. We might do something like that when we actually get to his denials. But, but today, I'm, I'm not going to focus on the lessons that can be gleaned from Peter's denial, from this tragic story. I'll just say this, that Peter thought he was totally committed to Jesus Christ. He thought he was loyal to Christ. He thought he was steadfast in his commitment to Jesus. He thought that. And in part, that's where his failure stemmed from. His failure stemmed from his inability to recognize his own weakness. And so he, he trusted in his loyalty rather than in the Lord. And that set him up for this discipleship meltdown that's coming. But what I, what I really want to focus on is not the lack of commitment on Peter's part to Christ, but on Jesus' steadfast commitment to Peter and to the other ten disciples in spite of their failure. And that's what stands out here. Jesus knows Peter will deny him, and he tells, plainly says so. He knows all the disciples will run for their lives when Jesus is arrested, and, and they're going to scatter. And, and in spite of their passionate protest to the contrary, we'll never leave you, we'll never deny you, we'll stay with you, we'll die with you, Jesus. And, and they all make these, these loud protests against Jesus. But, he, but what is he? He does not push them aside because of their failure. He loves them steadfastly. It's this committed, loyal love. He, he shows that love. He loves them to the end, and He shows it by restoring them and, and using them in wonderful ways after His resurrection. And so, loving like Jesus means being steadfast in our commitment to the other person's greatest good, no matter how they treat you. The greatest good of all people is that they know, they love, they, they follow, they glorify, they they trust in Jesus Christ and, and they become more and more like Him. And, and so this, this is the kind of steadfast love that, that holds a marriage together. It's caring more for the good of your spouse than, than my wants. It's the kind of steadfast, committed love that moves us to work through, through difficult conflicts in the church body. I mean, it, it, it manifests itself. What does it look like? It's staying when things get difficult. I mean, it, and things get difficult in, in churches, don't they? I mean, you've walked through stuff in your past. There's stuff we're going through now. It's difficult. I, and I'm not saying there's never a reason. Maybe another way we'd say, another evidence of steadfast love, it's, it's hate. It's not getting angry when people do leave. It's, it's God, we, we don't want people. We don't want that. And we, we love and we want to reach out and want to and fold people in. But we're not a cult. We're not going to harass them and threaten them and intimidate them. We, we trust the Lord. You know, He'd come back. and We trust them in your care. But that's, that's steadfast love. It's working through disagreements, working through conflicts, staying at the table. It's, it's discipling relationships, always forming and, and enduring for long periods of time, years even. It's people meeting together and working through the Scriptures, discipling, praying with one another. It's, 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 as time goes on, maybe you change roles in service and maybe you're not doing the things you used to do, but you, you don't ever retire from serving. It might, it might make me look different, but you, you're, still, you're still pulling. It means guarding your heart from cynicism. It's that, that unbelief in God's power to, to change a heart, to change a life. It's refusing to revenge a wrong. 
It's doing and saying hard things that may not feel like love to the other person. Jesus loved people and sometimes that meant confronting them and, and sometimes the loving thing is to confront a brother or sister in his or her sin or let them experience the consequence of their own sin. And, and it does, love doesn't enable a person to continue in, in their sin, sinful, irresponsible ways. That doesn't mean we're rude or insensitive or arrogant, but we, we need, as Paul says, to abound more and more in love with knowledge and all discernment. But, but uh, a true Christ-like love, it's steadfast, it's committed, it's not flighty, it's not just kind of up and down and all around. It's just, hey, we're together. We're going we're gonna to get through this. Well, Jesus is calling us, brothers and sisters, he's calling us Baraka. He says, little children, Baraka, love, as I have loved you, love one another. Happy is the church that, that loves like Jesus loves. That's a blessed church. I would encourage you, maybe as just a little practice this week, is to meditate upon those characteristics of love you see in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 to 7. Love is patient. Love is kind. Does not envy, does not boast. Is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Let's take one of those characteristics. Each day this, over the next several days, study it, meditate upon it, pray in light of it. That will be a good practice. God will change you. But this is, this is what I want to end with. Love, loving like Jesus, it's not just about imitation. Jesus didn't just leave us an example to follow. That's, that's not it. And so, so we need more than the example of Christ to obey Him and to love like He loved. To live, to love sacrificially, sympathetically, obediently, uh, visibly, steadfastly. We, we need more than an example. We cannot love like Jesus, first of all, if we haven't received the love of God in Christ Jesus. We love because we have been loved, because we've been loved first. If, you, if you're to grow in love for others, you, and, and, like, and correspondingly, you need to meditate much upon God's love for you in Christ. But, but even as believers, love isn't simply a matter of just forcing our wills into submission and just, just doing it. Just, just, just do it. It's not primarily imitation. It's, it's participation this is what I mean. To, and we'll get here in, in John 15. And if you want to turn there now, that's fine. To, to love like Jesus, we must abide in Jesus. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, 1 John 2.10. But in John chapter 15, verse 12 and 13, and we'll be here soon, Jesus says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. He's repeating this. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. How do you love like that? How do, you, how do you give up the first drop of blood and be, and be willing to give up the last drop of blood? How do, how do you love like that? You back up to verse 9. As the Father loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. To love as Jesus loved, we don't simply imitate, we participate. We abide in the vine. Our, our love for one another isn't, isn't just a simulation of Jesus' love. It's, it's a manifestation of Jesus' love. When we love one another, we're loving one another with the love of Christ. 
And so, so we, are, we are branches. Jesus is the vine and we, we cling to Him. If we abide in Him, we bear much lasting fruit. We, we bear the fruit of love and we can love one another. And this is how all people will know that we're truly Jesus' followers. And, and so this, is, this kind of self-sacrificing, caring, visible, obedient, loyal love, it's only possible as we abide in Christ. Being close, if we're close to Jesus and clinging to Jesus, abiding in Jesus over a long period of time, then, then we'll begin to absorb that most essential part of His character. And we'll be able to love one another. It's not something we we got to clean our act up and do it on our own and then so Jesus will be happy with us and let us be his followers. No, we cling to Christ and we're changed by him and draw near to him and, and we love as he has loved us and we love because he has loved us. And so this is, we, we, we abide in him. That's what we need. We need to be a church that's continually drawing nearer to Christ. And as we do, there will be a greater manifestation of love as we participate in his love for us. Let's pray. Father, deepen our understanding of your, the depth, the enormity of your love for us in Christ Jesus. And, um, and God, I pray that we as a church would be, would be changed by that uh, greater understanding and that you would, um, that we, we as a church would we'd be able to, to do as we're about to sing now, God, that you would be, you would be all to us, and we would cling to you as branches desperately cling to the vine for all of our sustenance, and, and so help us to draw nearer to you, Christ, and, and may it show up and again in our love for one another. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.